Good evening. It is an absolute joy to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you this evening. And just love and appreciate this congregation so much. I feel like uh, the Delray and Wichita congregations are sister congregations in the genuine sense of that term. Our young folks get together quite often and uh, do Bible marking and go on retreats together and go to camp together. And it's just um, been a blessing uh, for our young people to be involved um, in the lives of your young people. And uh, just thank you so much for what you have meant to this community and this city and, and to the uh, Lord's kingdom around the world through the mission efforts that you're involved in for so many years. I'm praying that uh, it will be like that until the Lord returns for you. Just the Lord blessing you and, and wonderful things happening. Okay, let's see if I can get this to work right. Probably not hitting the right button. Okay. Okay. You know what? I'm probably pointing it the wrong way, aren't I? It would probably help if I pointed it the right way. That's all right. We'll go with what we've got. I have a feeling that um, in the early to mid-1800s, when brethren like uh, Alexander Campbell, okay, are you seeing Genesis 127 up there? Awesome. Um, brethren like Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone were working up uh, the sermon that they would do on a given Sunday, and if they were going to uh, deal with some passages from Genesis chapter 1, I seriously doubt that they spent some time laboring over how they were going to deal with verse 27. Uh, I, I have a feeling that they didn't say to themselves, you know, this passage is so difficult. It's so hard to understand. Um, it's, it's one of the more complex passages in the Bible. I'm, I'm going to have to spend some time developing this before I can move. I have a feeling that they didn't spend any time worrying about trying to explain or trying to help anybody understand uh, what the Godhead is saying about man and woman and how they were created, man and woman, male and female in his image. I have a feeling that, let's back up a bunch. I have a feeling that brethren like Brother Guy in Woods and Brother Gus Nichols in the early to mid-1900s when they were getting ready to preach a lesson on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and they're going to be dealing with Matthew chapter 19, I have a feeling that they did not spend a whole lot of time thinking to themselves, well, before we even get into verse 9 and, and start talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage, we're going to have to spend a lot of time explaining what Jesus said in the first part of that chapter. When he went back to Genesis chapter 127, have you never read that in the beginning, God made them man and woman, male and female, did he create them, male and female? How difficult is that for any of us to understand? And yet, here we are, 2017 in the United States of America, and Apparently, common sense has gone the way of the dodo bird, and we have now revolutionized the whole idea of what gender is, what it means, how it's defined. And I know I'm not telling you things that you don't already know. New York City, I guess it's still the largest city in the United States, just recently, within the last 12 months, decided that they would pass uh, regulations identifying 31 different genders. I thought about, if you've never uh, looked at that list, 
I, I don't know if I should recommend that you even go trying to find the list. I thought about reading off some of the additional genders in addition to the two very plainly described in Genesis 127 and Matthew 19 and many other passages. Uh, but I felt like I would start saying things that are not appropriate in an assembly like this just to read the list of genders that New York City says that they now recognize and they are even mandating. You've probably followed the news and read the articles. They, they are mandating to the business community in New York City that if one of your employees decides that they want to be identified as one of the 29 new genders and they want you to refer to them, if you're using a pronoun, with the pronoun that has been invented to match that particular gender, if you do not do those things, you could be uh, in violation of New York City Municipal Code, and you could be subject to fines. National Geographic, one of the more, um, at least used to be, respected magazines, has been around for a long time. January of this year, this was their cover article talking about the gender revolution. On the cover of the article, they had this young boy who now says that he is a girl, and he says, it's now much better to live for me because I don't have to pretend to be a boy anymore, cover of National Geographic magazine. Those of you who watch ESPN, maybe you've watched the ESPYs and you probably remember, was this 2016? I've not had cable in a number of years, so I did not see it myself, but heard about it later. This is basically, as most of you probably are aware of, the, the, Academy, War, the Academy Awards of the sports world. ESPN has what they call the ESPYs, and they give away uh, sports awards for various achievements for that particular year in sports. And for a few years, they've had a person of courage that they have, have honored, the, the Arthur Ashe person of courage. And you may remember just a year or so ago that Bruce Jenner, who now wants us to refer to him as a she, as Caitlyn Jenner, was brought out in an evening gown and gave a speech having received the Person of Courage Award for the year from ESPN. And this just came out one week ago today. Appeared in the Washington Post. Let me read this for you just quickly. The bishop spoke the traditional words as she placed her hands on the new deacon named M, with just a slight difference from the way those words have always been spoken before. Quote, Pour out your Holy Spirit upon him, the bishop said. Send them now to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to announce the reign of God, and to equip the church for ministry. Not, quote, send him now, or, quote, send her now. But the way the bishop's words were said is send them now. Barclay, a transgender person who identifies as neither male nor female, and thus uses the pronoun they, was commissioned on Sunday as the first non-binary member of the clergy in the United Methodist Church. Non-binary, I think, used to be a, a phrase that we used in the mathematical world or in the computer programming world. But apparently now this word is being used in the gender classification world. And so I had to look up, what does it mean? Because I, I, when I saw that, I said, what does that even mean when you're talking in, in terms of gender, to be non-binary, so I had to look it up in Webster's. They've already got a definition for us. It's a person with gender identity that does not fit into the male-female divisions. And so just one week ago today, 
the Methodist Church decided to um, pronounce the title of clergy on a transgender person who does not identify as either or. And if you've not looked at the, the gender list that is provided to us by the great city of New York, that's one, to, one of the things. You can, you can choose to not decide. Uh, one of the others is, is you can choose to be gender fluid. You may know this. You can decide to be a male today, and you can decide to be a female tomorrow, and then you can make your employers refer to you as the opposite pronoun as they were referring to you the day before. And then if on Friday you feel like going back to the gender that you were on Monday, well, there you go. You're allowed to do that, and your employer better follow suit and use whatever pronoun you're feeling like you are on a given day. I wish I was making this up. It sounds like I should be reading from National Enquirer magazine. But that's the world that we're living in. United Methodist Church, the article in the Washington Post went on to say, is one of the largest denominations in America, falling behind only the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. The mainline Protestant denomination has been bitterly divided over sexuality and gender identity. Its official rules say clergy must either be celibate or in heterosexual marriages and can perform only such marriages, but American bishops have ordained gay and transgender clergy before, and, cler and those clergy have conducted same-sex marriages. They went on to say one more thing that I'll quote from that article. In the Northern Illinois Conference where Barclay was commissioned Sunday, Bishop Sally uh, Deke said in a statement, quote, while M's journey over the last few years has included gender identity, all of those who were commissioned or ordained on Sunday have been on some kind of journey that has brought them to new places of faith, life, and relationships. Likewise, I hope the church will find itself at a new place in the near future when it comes to full inclusion. And then just today, I normally um, don't ever even have a New York Times newspaper in my hand, but I was in a grocery store just less than an hour ago, and just happened, there happened to be a New York Times um, newspaper right there, so I just picked it up. Jeff Sessions was on the, the top of the fold, but on the bottom of the fold was an article about a, a diocese in the Northeast uh, that invited 100 practicing uh, homosexual, bisexual, and transgender Catholics into their open fellowship for the first time they said ever. The article went to, on to call it a miracle and went on to say that it probably would not have happened five years ago, but the Catholic Church has grown and matured in their beliefs and ideas when it comes to gender identity. They quoted one uh, of the Catholic priest who was part of the, um, the cathedral or whatever they call that place where they went. And he said, well, I was just reading a passage about um, you need to be able to, to give a hope. He was referencing 1 Peter 3.15, and he said, I hope that today these hundred individuals will have, have a hope. I've never seen that kind of misuse of 1 Peter 3.15. This word misogynist, you've probably heard it said a lot in the last year or two. And um, for the longest time, I didn't know what it meant. And I've been hearing it so much over the last couple of years, I decided, well, I need to have a, a working definition of this word. So I looked it up. Maybe you don't aren't familiar with the word, so just in case you're not, uh, the definition of a misogynist is a person who hates, dislikes, mistrusts, or mistreats women. So I thought to myself... Well, there's one thing I don't have to worry about being. 
I, I know I'm not a misogynist because I try my best not to do any of those things to women until I read uh, some information from Everyday Feminism, an article posted in November of 2015, and the author said this, you do not get to decide what qualifies someone as a man or a woman. Anyone who says they're a woman is a woman. You're not the authority on womanhood, case closed. Further, insisting that there are only two genders is misogynistic in and of itself. The assertion that every person should be able to fit into one of two distinct genders results in a lot of people feeling alienated, unseen, and unsafe. So unbeknownst to me, I, I became a misogynist. I was so hoping that I was not. But since I believe in Genesis 1.27 and Matthew 19.4, according to feminism today, I am. If you believe what it plainly teaches and what any three or four-year-old would understand, if you taught them Genesis 1.27 and Matthew 19.4, if you believe those words, that in the beginning God created man and woman, binary, male and female, he created them. If you believe that, you're a misogynist. And I've got some news for you, ladies. You're a misogynist. You hate and mistreat your own selves. If you believe in Genesis 1:27, Matthew 19:4, that Jesus, the Godhead, created only two genders. Why is it then? You know, we've got social media nowadays, and, and when, when friends are expecting You've got uh, married couples that are friends of yours, and they're expecting a baby, and they found all these fancy ways to have gender reveal parties. And I have yet to see one of these when there's 31 colored balloons or paint, or I have not seen one of these where the gender reveal is one out of 31 of the colors in the Crayola 64 box. It's always pink and blue. Male and female. So the womb of women today is misogynistic. Because the womb is saying that there's only two genders. There's only male and female. So if we have any ladies that are in here um, with expecting a child, please know that your womb is misogynistic. And apparently you need to do something about that, according to modern society. Well, why are there only two genders in a gender reveal party? In fact, Babylon B, do any of you, I know several of you do, did you see the one where the parents of a teenager was going to have a gender reveal party? Did you, have you read that one recently? If you don't know what the Babylon B is, it's a satirical um, site where they, they make fun of things that are really deserving of being made fun of a lot of times in modern society. And so when I read this, please know it's tongue-in-cheek. Stating that they could hardly wait to see what gender their little bundle of joy was going to be, Mr. and Mrs. Murphy opened their home to friends and family over the weekend to host a gender reveal party for their 15-year-old child. The partygoers reportedly partook in games like guessing the gender using pink, blue, purple, green, red, and brown M&Ms to cast their vote, taking a quiz to see who knew the most of the teenager's triggers, and winning pins from other guests who slipped up and used the wrong pronoun for the child. It goes on with another paragraph, but you get the gist of what they're saying. This is the world that we're living in. I'm not telling you anything that you do not know already. And like I said, if Brother Campbell or Brother Stone or Doug, can you imagine one of those guys coming back and, 
and you, you have to do a lesson on, you know, proclaiming the truth of the gospel about how many genders there are. But that is the society that we live in. We're talking about science. And science, as we know, is in accordance with God's design. And the reason why there are only two genders in the, in the womb is, is that's the only two that there are. That's the only two that there are. That's the only two there ever have been. That's the only two there ever will be. That is in accordance with God's design. Any attack against that has nothing to do with science and has everything to do with emotion. And we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But it's very ironic to me, and you've probably thought about these kinds of things, where there are people who will say, now you have to believe in man-made global warming because the science is irrefutable. Or you have to believe in atheistic evolution because the science is irrefutable. But we've got clear, real, irrefutable science here. And some of the same people who were saying that you've got to believe in man-made global warming, that we're, we're burning ourselves up because of the decisions that we're making not protect the environment. You've got to believe in atheistic evolution because... The science in somewhere, I've not seen it yet, proves that we came from nothing. But here we've got clear, plain, easy to observe, easy to, easy to scientifically observe and recognize science. And some of those same people who will call you science deniers will say, don't you dare tell me that I can't pick what gender I am. Don't you dare tell me that there's only two genders. You're a misogynist, and you're a hateful person if you try to tell me that Genesis 1.27 and Matthew 19.4 are real. So we know this is according to God's design. And what we need to remind ourselves of, and I hope, I know it's hard for me to not at times be a little sarcastic about this because it, it, it is so ridiculous, and maybe I should not do that, and if you don't like that, I apologize. But I know the Bible also says answer fool according to his folly. And I can only imagine how our Lord would feel about the attack that has been administered against his plan for the way we identify ourselves as human beings. And it's not just an attack on, on the gender construct. And what we need to understand is it goes much deeper than that. It's an attack on the home. It's an attack on the family. Ever since the devil observed God bring Adam and Eve together as man and woman and said, now from here on out, you will be one flesh, when he instituted the marriage and family institution, it is the oldest institution on the face of the earth and outside of the church, it is the most precious to God on the face of the earth. Because the family is supposed to be a mirror representation of the church. The husband's love for his wife is supposed to be, Ephesians 5, a mirror representation of Christ's love for the church. And the man who takes on the headship and spiritual leadership in the home, he is not being a dictator in the home. He's actually being submissive to God who's called on him to take on that role. And a woman who chooses to to carry out Ephesians 5 in her life and be submissive to her husband is not becoming a slave. She is becoming submissive ultimately to Jesus Christ because that's the pattern of the home that's outlined for us plainly in Scripture. So we need to understand what's going on here. 
that this is, a, this is an attack on the very institution that God instituted from the very beginning, an institution so precious to him that it is a second only to the church that his son established. And anything that's being done in this area, when it comes to gender identity, when it comes to, and there, there's not just two, there's 31, you can't tell me what I am. I may feel like one gender one day, I may feel like another the other day. We all know this. It's not based on science. Every last bit of it is based purely on emotion. In fact, let me share with you a statement that came on the heels of the announcement by the city of New York to recognize formally 31 genders. This is what the New York Commission on Human Rights said. This is part of the information they disseminated to the... Um, businesses and employers of New York City so that they can know how to deal with uh, the changing of, of the rules there. Uh, quote, gender identity is one's internal deeply held sense. Notice that. We're not talking about science. We're not talking about biology. We're talking about how someone feels. We're talking strictly 100% about emotion, a deeply, a deeply held sense of one's gender as male, female, or something else entirely. Anywhere in Scripture do you see, when it's talking about the human race, do we have men, women, or on occasion something or someone else entirely? Everything we see Every assault that we see on this issue is purely based on emotion and a desire to assault the home because whether they realize it or not, the home is designed to be, as we have said, the embodiment, the earthly embodiment of Christ's love for the church. That's the design for the home. That's the design for the man and the woman in the home, the husband and the wife. It is to be a representation of the love that Christ has for his church. If you've ever read, well, I know you've read it many times, Ephesians 5, beginning of verse 23 through the end of that chapter, it's interesting the way that Paul just weaves back and forth between talking about the husband and wife in the church. If we're going to talk about fluidity, that's something that is fluid, the way that he just moves back and forth. He's talking about the husband and wife, he's talking about the church because the marriage relationship, the man, the woman, being joined together as one flesh, that is supposed to be the mirror representation of Christ's love for the church. A transgender person, this is some additional information. Let me go back. I'm sorry for a second. A transgender person is someone whose gender identity does not match the sex they were assigned at birth. Do you, do you see what's being said here? By those who have implemented these changes in cities like New York, they are saying that what we are telling you is we realize we're not talking about science. We realize that we're not talking about biology. We're talking about people who were assigned a sex at birth, either male or female, and they have chosen that they do not want to be that. They have decided they want to be something else. And so we have to, as a society, go along with it. I was talking a moment ago when we were reading that article appeared in the Washington Post a week ago today when the person who was uh, pronouncing the, the title of clergy on the, the transgender non-binary, the one that does not 
um, identify with either. You remember they, the person referred to that person as them. Well, that's not the only changes that have been made to uh, the world of pronouns. There's a whole set. These are just a few of the ones that match up with various uh, genders that fall between the male and female. And this is um, an article that appeared. I cannot remember um, where I got this article, but the article was on the fact that a pronoun in 2015 was named by lexographers as the word of the year. Let me just share with you two quotes that come from this. What happens when 334 linguists, lexicographers, grammarians, etymologists gather in a stuffy lecture hall on a Friday night to debate the lexical trends of the year? They become the unlikely heroes of the new gender revolution. The American Dialect Society appointed they the singular gender-neutral pronoun, the 2015 word of the year, as in, they and I went to the store, where they is used for a person who does not identify as male or female, or they is a filler pronoun in a situation where a person's gender identity is unknown. The article went on to say, what happens if someone is expecting me to use the pronoun that they believe matches up with their gender identity, and I don't? What happens if I refer to a person as a he, but they wanted me to refer to them as a they? Well, then the article is going to say, you just apologize profusely and say you'll try to do much better next time. That's the world that we're living in. We know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, that God is not the author of confusion, yet are we not living in confusing times? where it seems that now we don't even know what pronoun we're supposed to call someone until they tell us what gender that they identify with. That's the kind of world we're now living in. And it's not because God made it confusing. Again, when you go back to Genesis 1.27 and Matthew 19.4, you can sit, if you've got a three- or four-year-old, you can sit them down You've probably already done this and read this passage to them, and you don't have to spend the next hour and a half trying to explain to them what that passage meant. Even a three- and four-year-old can grasp it. God did not make this confusing. When he designed the scientific world or when he designed us, there's nothing confusing about this issue. We as modern society have made it confusing. It's interesting how far things and how fast things are going. Um, Up until at least this year, first part of this year, the World Health Organization uh, categorized transgenderism as a mental illness. So up until at least the first part of 2017, it meant that there there was something that the person was dealing with, a struggle or an issue that they were dealing with on an emotional, psychological level that was causing this. The World Health Organization is not saying this is biology, but now they've been under pressure. And an article that was reading about the World Health Organization says this, the fact that they uh, categorize transgenderism as a mental illness could soon change. The proposals to declassify transgender identity as a mental disorder have been approved by each committee that has considered it so far. So it's going through the committee phase, and they believe um, that eventually the World Health Organization will completely change um, what they have been calling transgenderism up to this point, and they will say, no, it is not. 
uh, any kind of uh, mental illness, mental disorder, that it is perfectly normal, perfectly rational. That information uh, appeared in the Chicago Tribune July of last year. I know our time is running out fast. You know, it's interesting when you read through Scripture, this idea that comes from such basic passages, a couple that we've looked at this evening. Uh, when you go back, and I know that we don't live under the law of Moses anymore, there are some principles that have carried over, carried over but we don't live under that law anymore. But it's interesting in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5, God did not even want the nation of Israel, the males, dressing in uh, a dress that pertained to females. He did not want females dressing in a way that pertained to males. Our differences as men and women are to be celebrated, not downplayed. Our distinctively different roles are to be accepted and not disregarded as they have been by modern society today. And we need to remind ourselves of what's going on and how serious of a matter this is. An attack on gender distinction is a satanic attack on the image of God in man. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the image and likeness of God. And so we, when we decide that that's not good enough, when we decide that that does not cover all the bases, when we decide that, that gender is not binary, that it cannot be divided into two distinct areas, what we are doing is we are attacking the very image and likeness of God in which we have all been created. It's interesting, and this is probably all that we'll have. There's so much that can be said and needs to be said about this issue. But it's interesting to me when you go back to Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, when you look at the law of Moses designating men don't dress in a way that pertains to women, women don't dress in a way that pertains to men, could it be that when we generally think of what that means, could it also go even beyond that and, and things that men, that God designed men to use, specifically speaking under the, uh, the way things were in the, the Old Testament times, a sword. Romans 13 and verse 4 says this, For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. These are, according to the Greek rendering, male masculine pronouns. The government does not bear the sword in vain. I believe that in part what God was saying to uh, the people under the law of Moses, and I believe that this is a principle that carries over into our society today, is God wanted men to fight the battles on the battlefield. He wanted that be, to be the domain of the males of a given society or culture or nation. And yet here we are in this current society in which we live, and there have been all restrictions on women serving on the front lines on the battlefield, and our armed forces have been removed. And as you well know now, we have um, a lot of issues that are arising from that. And I started wondering, is this an area that God is concerned about? Is this something that God is okay with? That societies, that nations will put weapons in the hands of the women and say, go out there on the front lines and fight those battles. And so as you start thinking about that, maybe you've already thought about that, but as you start thinking about that, your mind may go, well, what about Deborah? What about jail? 
What about the things that happened back in Judges chapter 4? I want to share something with you in our last couple of minutes. Judges chapter 4 and verse 6. When Deborah was a judge over the nation of Israel, she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun? So isn't it interesting now that Deborah, even though she is a judge, she's in a position of authority, she's in a position of leadership, she's calling Barak to her and saying, has God not told you to take sons and go out and fight against the enemy? You remember what Barak said? Uh, Judges chapter 4 and verse 9, I will surely, or well, before we get there, um, you remember what Barak said? Well, I'll go to the battlefield if you go. But if you don't go, I'm not. And then I know, what, I know you remember what she said in Judges chapter 4 and verse 9. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. If you've never read this account before, if you have no idea what's going to happen next, what are you thinking in your mind is going to happen? Well, Deborah is the judge, and Barak is saying, I'm not going out to the battlefield if you go with me. And then she says, I'll go with you, but I need you to know that the glory... For this victory is going to fall into the hands of a woman. If you've never read what happens next, what would you assume God is going to do? Would you assume God is going to put a sword in Deborah's hand and allow her a victory on the battlefield? But isn't it interesting what happens next? In Judges chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, however, Sisera, the leader of the army that the nation of Israel was fighting, had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. I know you've probably known from a young age what happens after that. He falls asleep in her tent. She picks up a hammer and a nail peg, and nails his head to the ground. And victory was given that day to the Israelites, and it was given into the hands of a woman. But did God send that woman into the battlefield and tell her to pick up a sword and start swinging it for all she was worth? It's very interesting to me that when God even said, I'm going to give the victory this day to a woman, he did not send Deborah out there with a sword, he did not send Jael out there with a sword. She lured a man off of the battlefield to her tent. And it's interesting to me, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and I didn't think about this until rather recently, and I may be off. You can take this for what it's worth. But it's interesting to me that in that setting, when Jael is going to be used providentially by the Lord to bring judgment against Sisera and his people, that after he has fallen asleep, she does not pick up his sword and stand a safe distance away and cut off his head. She picks up household tools, a hammer and a tent peg. To me, it seems like it would have been safer 
it would have provided a little bit of a distance. You would not have to be right up there close and personal doing what you've got to do to bring victory for God and His people. But yet she does not pick up the sword. She uses household tools. And it's interesting to me that when Deborah is talking about this in Judges chapter 5, and she's talking about the great victory that God has given the people, and she refers to herself not as the judge of the nation of Israel, not as a great warrior, not as a faithful soldier in God's army. She refers to herself in Judges 5 and verse 7 as the mother of Israel. That Deborah, even when she was in this position of power, in this position of authority, she maintained her femininity. And what we're being told, in fact, you may have read some, and I know our time is just about out, but one of the things that has been really pushed from by modern society with regard to this issue is that there are no legitimate differences between men and women. That every dis- difference outside of basic chromosomal biology is strictly cultural. That is the message that is being pushed down the throats of our young people by society today is that there is absolutely no difference between boys and girls, men and women, except for just basic biology. And we've even muddied the water on that, societally speaking. But they say that any difference, the, the, the idea that, uh, or, or the, the desire that a woman has to be a, a wife and mother and nurturer, if you have those desires, if you're a female and have those desires, those are strictly cultural. They have been infused in you by culture. That doesn't come naturally. And it's very interesting to me that when Deborah was singing the song of victory and she was recounting what Jael had done in the tent with Sisera, she said, blessed is she among women, not on the battlefield, and you can go back and check if you've not read this in a while. She said, blessed is she among women in tents. Even when a battlefield victory was given to a woman in Scripture, the battle came to her at her home. God did not make her go out there on the battlefield, pick up a sword and a shield, and start swinging it. Because God, from the very beginning, has had responsibilities given to men and women, and he wants us to carry those responsibilities out. And I know what society says. When we try to say things like this, oh, if you're saying there are differences, then, then you're saying that one gender is better than the other. And how ridiculous it is to think about just because we're saying something is different, it means that then obviously one is superior to the other. Just because two things are different, does that mean that one is better than the other? Difference does not mean inequality. In fact, Jesus said that concerning the Father, even though he is in submission to him, he said, I don't consider it robbery to be called equal with him. Jesus is equal with God. Philippians 2, 5 and 6, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But notice what it says in 1 Corinthians. Sorry, let me get up here. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to know 
that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. And so even though God is the head of Christ, Christ is saying, I am God's equal. I, am, I have an equal role in the Godhead. Just because God has told the husband, I want you to be the spiritual leader and head of the home. He is not then inferring or implying by that. Now, that also means that you are superior to the woman. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that. And yet society is trying to push that down our throat. If you're saying there's differences, then you're saying one is better than the other. And we know that's not true. We know it's not true. But you can be different and still be equal. God is calling on us to recognize, appreciate, and accept the roles that he has given to us based on the gender that he has assigned us. David said he formed us when we were in the womb. He decided in the womb whether we were going to be male or female. There are responsibilities and duties that come with being assigned that gender. Are we going to accept them? Are we going to acknowledge them? Are we going to recognize them? Are we going to submit to God? Men, are we going to submit to God by being the spiritual head of our home, the uh, the, the spiritual leader in our home, raising our children, Ephesians 6, 4, in the nurture and admonition of our Lord. Are we going to take on the responsibility? Ladies, if you take on the role of wife and mother, you're going to accept the responsibility that comes with that to be in submission to your husband. The question is, are we going to accept what God has told us with regard to gender roles? Or are we going to listen to society and allow common sense and reason to go out the window? Thank you so much for your kind attention tonight.